Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Today we're reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. What do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not overcome it. Good morning. Did you know that yesterday was the first official day of spring? Hooray! I'm Carrie. I'm here with a story for the kids. And in a few weeks, we will celebrate Easter. So the story today is to help us get ready for that special day. This story comes from a long time ago, many, many years ago, before, before the very first Easter. This true story comes from... The my fan club is growing. <laughs> when Jesus was all grown up, he was a regular guy. Well, he was also God. Nod your head if you agree with that. All right. So he was both. He walked. He talked. He ate. He got tired. He got hungry. He got mad. He asked questions. He made friends. He made enemies. He learned things, and he taught people things. He worked and he rested. He had feelings. He was a real person. Except there is one thing that Jesus never did. Do you know what it is? Sinned, that's right. He never made a mistake because he always obeyed God and always did what was right. He always showed love to God. One day, Jesus was with his friends, just his 12 closest friends. And he asked them a question. Now, at this time, Jesus was really quite popular, maybe even famous. So lots of people knew who he was, and they had ideas about who he was. So Jesus asked, who do people think I am? It was a little mysterious for people. The friends told him, some people think you're John the Baptist. Was he John the Baptist? No. Some people think that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of those amazing prophets, but that wasn't right. People knew there was something special about Jesus, something that made him different. 
but they weren't quite sure what to think. So then Jesus looked at his 12 friends and he said, who do you think I am? Now this is a good question, a good question for us too. Who do you think Jesus is? They took a minute to think. And while they were thinking, Peter answered first. He said, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the one. You are God's son. Wow, that was quite an answer to tell to a regular person who was also God. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, blessed are you. That's right. You knew this, Peter, because my Father in heaven helped you. God helped you know the truth and understand who I really am. Then Jesus told Peter that he would bless him and that Peter would be a blessing to others. Peter would start the new church and help the new believers. That must have made Peter feel great to hear that. Then Jesus said, don't tell anyone yet. It wasn't time for everyone to know. Now, if I was there, I would have wanted to tell everyone. Would you have wanted to tell everyone? Yeah. I don't really understand why Jesus said to wait, but I do know that because Jesus is God's son, he knows what's best. So we need to trust his plans. Right after that, Jesus started telling his 12 friends what would happen next. Now, this was hard for them to hear. He told them that he would soon need to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a real place. You can go there today, although it's a long trip. I checked the weather. It's 79 degrees there today. So it's very nice. It's a real place. Anyways, Jesus said he was going to go there, and it was going to be hard and sad. The people in charge would hurt him and eventually kill him. But he told them, after three days, I will come alive again. And Peter, who was still feeling great about what he said about Jesus, he said, no, Jesus, this cannot happen to you. Remember, he knew Jesus was God's son. How could this happen to God's son? This time, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, get behind me, my enemy. You don't know what God has planned. You are just thinking of things the way people do. That must have been hard to hear and made Peter stop and think. Jesus wanted Peter to know that this was going to be a hard thing for Jesus to do. And it meant Jesus had to do a sad thing that would hurt him. Would Jesus do it? Would he really let those people hurt him and kill him? Would he really die? Could the Son of God really die? Yes, Jesus did because he loves you and me and all of his people so very much. He would do a hard and sad thing to save us and to rescue us. And after Peter said that, Jesus told his friends. He said, you'll have to make a decision if you want to follow me. And if you decide to follow me, you have to let me do this hard thing for you. You have to give up your own plans and stop trying to save yourself in your own way. You have to let me be the boss. And when you do, you will find new life. 
Then Jesus tells them that one day he will come back with an army of angels. Wow. We don't know when that day will come, but I believe him. Do you? Yes. So now I have two questions for you. One is, who do you think Jesus is, really is? And what's your decision about following Jesus? He is the way to new life. And Jesus said one day he will come back again with an army of angels. When this happens, I want to be ready with my answers. Jesus is the king, the true king. I will follow him and let him be the boss of my life. And he gives me new life too. It's the best decision I've ever made. As you play outside this week, remember it's now spring. So I want you to look for those little green plants that are just coming up. And remember that Jesus gives you new life too when you choose him. Then come back next week and the next to find out what happens next with Jesus in Jerusalem. All right, kids, you can uh, go to the back. Pastor Abby is back there, and she will take you to Kids Park, so enjoy that. In here, we're going to continue the conversation that, uh, that Carrie started, or actually that Allison started, and uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 16. And I want to start out with this question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Of course, it's a rhetorical question. We don't have time for everyone to answer it out loud right now. Uh, but oftentimes, we talk about it in terms of believing in Jesus. And for us, that word is an intellectual word that we submit to particular doctrines. And it certainly does mean that, that there are certain things that we believe about Jesus in our head. But when Jesus talked about following him, he talked about more than just that. It's not just about what happens in our head, but it's actually something that happens with our life. It's a path where we follow him and we walk the way that he walked. And I think sometimes as we get into the grind of life, it's easy for us to slide into the routine of being good religious people. Okay, we live our good middle class lives, we love our family, we don't intentionally hurt people, uh, we, don't, uh, we, we go to church and uh, when we think about it, we read our Bible or pray or you know, kind of when we feel like it. And for many Christians, this is how we live out our faith. In fact, you might be familiar with the work of the sociologist Christian Smith, who did a study on the religion of Americans, and he focused primarily on young people, but I think this is, his research is something that would extend to really probably the majority of Americans. And what he said was, his, his, um, what, what he said was that the religion of people in America today is what you might call moralistic therapeutic deism. And, uh, and uh, his description points to these three sort of general beliefs or attitudes of the average American. The first is, is that it's moralistic in that we believe that God wants us to be good people. And that's certainly true. He wants us to be good people. Uh, but what that means to most people is, is that he wants us to be nice people, uh, nice to people who are nice to us, to not break the law and to not judge people. That's primarily what it means. Uh, and it's therapeutic because we also believe that God just wants us to be happy. Uh, and so we gauge right living on whether or not we're happy. If we're not happy and things aren't going our way, it must be because we're doing something wrong. And if we are happy, then it must be because we're doing things right. After all, what God wants 
is for us to be happy. Deism is something that's been around for many centuries, and it's basically just the belief or the philosophy that, that the creator God created the world and he wound it up and just let it go, but isn't really interested in our li- in, invested in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And he says that the average person in America actually believes in God, but doesn't necessarily live as if God is an active presence in their life, usually until something goes wrong, and then we become people of very intense prayer. Well, my guess is that this is something that probably rings true for a lot of people that you know, and maybe even in some ways the way you live your life as well. That's certainly the kind of religion that our society finds acceptable and and encourages. Uh, But the question is, is this the kind of life that Jesus had in mind when he said, come, follow me? Well, the passage that we're looking at today will help us answer that question. And so if you're not there already, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, Or if you were open to it and you turned away, I want you to open it again because we're going to be walking through it. And as you're getting there, I just want to let you know how excited I am that we're going to be able to worship together on Easter in person this year. You know, I was thinking about it this morning and realized that, you know, the reality is, is we haven't done it in two years, right? I mean, we missed last year. We were in an empty room here, like Abby said uh, earlier, I think. And uh, man, it just was not the same. And so to be able to be together with all of you on Easter, uh, I know some of you said we got dressed up to sit at home and watch it on the, on the live stream. And this is going to be so much better. Well, we'll take all the precautions. We'll have overflow seating and all of that. And so we want you to come and to celebrate with us. It's going to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. All right. Now, back to the passage. Uh, Of course, before we get to Easter, we have to get to the cross, right? And so for the next two Sundays, as well as Good Friday service, we are going to walk down that path. Now, the passage that we're looking at today is actually the hinge point of the book of Matthew. It is the separating point between the beginning and the end because there's a theme that sort of changes in there. You can divide it into two parts, Matthew chapters 1 through 1620, which is right in the middle of our passage today, and then verse 21 through the end of the book. And I'll talk about why this is in just a little bit. Okay, but let's go ahead and start by diving into verse 13. This is what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, all right, we're going to stop right there because this is one of those statements that oftentimes we skip over because it's just geography. And the truth of the matter is, is we don't really know our Middle Eastern geography anyway, and so it doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. But this is actually very significant, and we'll come back to that in just a minute as well, so make a mental note there. And then he goes on, and it says, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. Okay, now this is a conversation among Jesus and his 12 disciples. He takes them away, has this private conversation with them. Because, and the first question that he asks is, is he wants to know, what does the general population say about me? In other words, what is the, the pop religious crowd saying about me right now? Just like moral therapeutic deism is the pop religion of today, Jesus is asking this question. What is the pop religion of today? What, is the, what are the comments that people have about me? Now, most people living around Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, were Jewish, and so they looked at everything through a Jewish lens. And so when we come to verse 14, it shouldn't be a surprise that they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Basically, their answer is, is that 
that people are saying that he is someone significant, like one of the many prophets of the Old Testament, or even John the Baptist, who was more recent. But they weren't saying necessarily that they thought that Jesus was the reincarnation of these prophets. They were saying that Jesus is a prophet on the level of these other prophets. Okay? They've been hearing about all of their lives as they've been growing up, that Jesus is significant, but actually not really all that out of the ordinary. But the point of Jesus' question was actually not that question. It was actually to get to the core of another even more important question. You see, he wanted them to know that he was not just another one of those prophets. He wasn't just another prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah. He was even bigger or more significant than that. You see, there were many prophets but only one Messiah. And so everything that he did in his ministry up to that point was designed to lead them to this very question. And the question was this, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And that's actually the question that all of us have to answer, isn't it? It's easy for us to read studies like Christian Smith does and say, well, the popular religious belief of the day is such and such. Okay, but this is the question that Jesus asks of all of us. Okay, everyone else believes in moral therapeutic deism, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, Peter, as usual, ended up being the spokesperson for the whole group. And so he answered them very directly. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And of course, Jesus' reply was, yes, you got it, Peter. Okay, that's a paraphrase, right? This is actually what he says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, you didn't figure this out for yourself. This is not a guess. It's not an opinion. This is something that God has revealed to you, and you are absolutely right. And then we get to verse 18. He goes on, you know, kind of rewarding or saying something good about Peter. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, which means uh, rock, by the way. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind, you can All right, let's get back to it. All right? Now, this is the first time that Jesus actually mentions the church. And the word here is the Greek word ekklesia, which uh, basically means a congregation. Or more specifically, it means a group of people who are called out for a purpose. It was originally a political or even a military word that Jesus co-ops to talk about his church. And so, in other words, Jesus founded the church community as a community of people who would be separated out for a particular purpose. Okay, just like, and and we went through this, just like at the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 1, human beings were separated out from all of the other creatures in the world for a specific purpose, to give glory to God and flourishing to the world, just like Abraham and his family were separated out from the rest of the people on earth to, to bless the world. The church is separated out from the rest of the world, not just to be the ones who have salvation, but the ones who give glory to God, and work for the flourishing of the world. So we are called out for a particular purpose, not just to be good religious folk, but to continue on the work of Jesus. And Jesus says that because Peter was the first person to make that declaration, he says, now I'm going to build on that foundation. 
Okay? Peter is going to play a, a foundational part, but it actually doesn't just apply to Peter. In fact, we see in other places in the New Testament that this same thing is said about the disciples in general. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Jews about Jews and Gentiles coming together as the new Israel. And, uh, and he says this, he says, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. Okay? So Paul describes the apostles as the foundation, and Peter, of course, as the first one to make that declaration, has a very significant role to play uh, in that foundation. Now, in here there's another question that, uh, that we might ask about the, what does Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing, but actually we're going to have to save that for another day. That's a long discussion and it's not really our point here today. But here's the point that I want to focus on today. Is that for Jesus, something was about to change. Something was going to be hard for his disciples to understand or to be able to accept even when they did understand it. And so he asked them a question that he needed to know the answer to, and they had to be clear about. He was asking, are you okay? Are you with me? Are we solid? Okay? He had to know this because everything that happened after that, the way they would follow him, hinged on their answer to that question. Remember the hinge? All right, here it is. We see it geographically, but we also see it in the message. Now, we said at the beginning that this was done in Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is way up in the north, and Jerusalem, the center of the religious authority, was way down in the south. Well, he was up at Caesarea Philippi, and this is the farthest north that Jesus would be in his lifetime. And, uh, and actually, certainly the farthest that he would be from Jerusalem during his ministry. And so it's at, at this point that Jesus makes a turn. He, he, at this point, was kind of making his way up to Caesarea. And almost to make a point, at this point he turns and he faces Jerusalem and he starts his walk to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And this is the message in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now everything up to this point, everything up to verse 20, was meant to convince people that Jesus was the Messiah. And, he, and they needed to be clear about his identity because he was about to reshape every expectation that they had about what the Messiah would do and what it meant for them. You see, their idea was that, that Jesus was going to be a conquering military or political ruler. Uh, after all, Messiah means, uh, mean, or Christ means king. And so what comes to mind when you think of the word king? Of course you think of the word power and authority and conquering and ruling. Well, it would have been the same for the disciples or any other uh, Israelite. But it's not that Jesus rejected power or authority or conquering or ruling. It was just that what he meant by that was not what we mean by it. In fact, Peter even tries to correct Jesus. Look at verse 22. He says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, not on my watch. And Peter made good on those words about 10 chapters later in Matthew 26 when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus and Peter cut off the ear of one of the soldiers. 
anything. So he made good on this. He still didn't understand at that point. Peter felt like he had to defend Jesus. And I have to admit, sometimes I kind of want to do this too. I want to say, wow, Jesus, this stuff sounds so negative. You know, if, 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 if I want people to follow Jesus, this is a terrible marketing strategy. I want to correct Jesus. I want to save him from himself. Okay, to make following him a little bit more palatable. Okay. We do this, don't we? We try to smooth out the road a little bit. Oh, Jesus' moral demands, they're not really that great. Christians, they're just like everyone else. Well, as it turns out, Jesus didn't need Peter's help, or mine, for that matter. Verse 23. Jesus turned to Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Okay, this, is, this is harsh. How would you like to stand before Jesus someday at the judgment and have him say, hey there, Satan, how are you doing? Can't imagine that would be very pleasant. Right? But essentially what he's saying is, is, Peter, you are the Antichrist. You are Antichrist. What you have in mind works directly against what I have in mind. And it's a, a forceful rebuke. The, the nice, domesticated Jesus of our moral therapeutic deism would probably say something different. He would prob probably say something like, now, now, Peter, 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 Peter. Your heart is in the right place. But you're just a little bit misguided because you don't understand yet. But it's okay. It's all right. We'll be, we'll be okay. You'll learn. No, what he's doing is, is he's telling Peter, this idea that you have in your head is a direct contradiction to the plans that I have, a direct contradiction to who I am. Now, I want you to get what he's saying here. Because this is not just a direct rebuke of Peter. But it's also a direct rebuke of much of, our, of much of our modern version of Christianity today who wants to make good, nice, middle-class religious folk. And I'm not against being middle-class, by the way. I have friends who are middle-class. <laughs> but I hope you understand what I mean here, all right? See, much of our middle-class pursuit, and I'm actually including myself in this, focuses on things like comfort and up upward mobility. And Jesus's Statement here is a direct con uh, uh, contradiction to the prevailing pop religion that following Jesus and being comfortable are twin goals. Okay, don't believe me? Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever. Okay, what does he mean by that? Whoever. Anyone. Okay, that's, another, that's what other translations say. Is he talking about the elite? Is he talking about the, the truly dedicated ones? Okay, was he saying something like, listen, you know, there are some people who want to follow me and you want to carry your cross, and there are some people who want to follow me and you don't really want to carry your cross. Well, whatever works for you. Not what he's saying. I don't see that here. And what he's saying is, is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you're going to have to make friends with the cross. So the question then is, is what does that mean? 
And I imagine this would have been a pretty cryptic saying for the disciples at the time. After all, Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be crucified. He just said he was going to be killed. Now, they would have been familiar, they would have been familiar with the, the idea of crucifixion. They had certainly seen their share of crosses in the Roman Empire. It was, of course, a, a tool of torture and a public spectacle of, of what happens when you cross the Roman Empire. It was a weapon of terror, basically, symbol of Roman dominance. And honestly, I'm not sure if Jesus expected them to entirely understand what he was saying at that point. But over the next few weeks, he was going to demonstrate it for them. And so the question is, is what does it mean to carry our cross? It's a critical question. Because Jesus wasn't just talking to the disciples there. He was talking about anyone, whoever wants to be my disciple. Okay, so if you're listening today and you want to be a disciple of Jesus, carrying your cross is not an option. It comes with the package. So again, what does Jesus mean? Well, you've probably heard someone say something like, uh, in, in despair or in resignation, oh, I guess it's just my cross to bear. You've heard that before? And typically when people say that, what they mean is that it's, uh, you know, something unpleasant that happens to me that is kind of a chronic condition, you know, maybe a, a health issue that they have to live with or unpleasant in-laws or something like that. And you can probably figure out that Jesus isn't saying something like that, that if you follow him, then there may be a few unpleasant things that happens to you. Well, that just goes without saying, okay? That's just life. Okay, unpleasant things happen to all of us, whether you're a believer or not. But carrying your cross is actually something different than that. Okay, Jesus says that it starts with denying ourselves. Verse 24 again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Okay, so, we're already getting into tough territory. Like I said, this is, this is hard marketing right here. All right? Because this is about as countercultural as it gets today. And I don't know if you've noticed that we live in a society that actually encourages us to put ourselves first. Okay, you do you. Okay, take care of yourself because if you don't, then no one else will. You have to do what makes you happy. Okay, it's all about putting your will first and focusing on largely the things that our society focuses on. Okay? But the truth is it's not just the outside world that has this attitude. This attitude creeps into the church as well where we come with our agenda of safety and comfort and happiness and wanting to listen for only what makes us feel good, not anything that will convict us or challenge our thinking. Because even in the church, it seems the individual is king. And it seems like many of us have lost our ability to feel conviction. There's only agree or disagree and very little repentance. But when it comes to denial of self, the core question is, whose agenda takes priority? Okay, so let's get practi practical here. I mentioned this on Wednesday, but uh, one of the big things that happened this week was many of us. I, I, how many of you got stimulus money this week? Anyone? Okay, quite a few, at least, at least half. Okay, deposited in your bank account. All of a sudden, you have way more money than you had before it went in there. And uh, for us, well, it was kind of a surprise to us because we forgot that we had three dependents too. So there was five of us, and so you can add it up. You can figure out how much we want or how much we got. Truth of the matter is, it was too much for us. Right? We didn't. We don't need that much. Um, and and now, as I talk about this, let me let me just say this. Okay, first of all, is that there are some of you who do need it. 
right? And for some of you, it's, it maybe is not even enough, okay? And so my goal here is not to make you feel guilty if it's something that you needed and you need to use it. I'm not talking about taking care of your needs, okay? God provides for you and your family, and this might be a way that, that he did that for you, and so be thankful for that and not guilty, okay? So I'm not talking about meeting your needs. I'm talking about accumulation. Because for some of us, uh, the stimulus wasn't necessary. It was actually a windfall. Okay, and I have to confess that my first inclination when I come into uh, a bunch of money, especially money that's unexpected, is to think, oh, man, what is the gadget that I wanted? Man, there's this, this new speaker. You know, I, I love, you know, good sound and all of that. Emma, <laughs> you're so exasperated by that, Emma. <laughs> you and your speakers, right? New gadgets, or, or maybe just, man, I would love to just put that in my bank account and let it sit there to alleviate some of my anxiety and make me just a little bit more comfortable. Okay, that's, that's natural. And that's, I have to admit, that's something that wells up in me, and I'm guessing that I'm not alone in that either. Okay? Well, the truth of the matter is, is that's our will. Okay? The question is, what is God's will? Well, I don't think you have to be a genius to figure out that when it comes to money, that God's will is that people's needs are met. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, you can see it in the New Testament, in Jesus' ministry, he says it explicitly in Luke chapter 4, that he's come to, to make care for the poor a central part of his ministry. And then by extension, we as followers of Jesus, and as the church, that should be also part of our ministry as well. In fact, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, look at what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands. Okay? Now, if we stop there, then we're left with this sort of common objection. Well, see, God says personal responsibility. So you take personal responsibility for yourself, and then they'll take personal responsibility for themselves. Okay? And by the way, I believe in personal responsibility. I think we should do that. Okay? But keep reading for a minute. All right? They must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Hmm. So why should we work hard? Why should we live simply? So that we have something to share with those in needs. You see, denying myself means privileging God's agenda over my own. Okay? Does that mean that you can't enjoy life? Or you have to spend every penny that you have on things that you need? I... I actually don't think so. I'm not quite, you know, if I, if I said that, I would be a hypocrite, okay? But I think also God said, uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, right? And so I think there's some space there. But don't give that phrase outsized importance either, okay? Don't build your theology of prosperity on that phrase, okay? For most of us, the temptation is not to deny ourselves. The temptation is to enjoy ourselves too much. Okay, well, here's the point. All right? If you live a life where you never intentionally deny yourself anything, then you are not living in the way of Jesus. If you indulge every urge, passion, or desire, then you don't know what it is to follow Jesus. If you make decisions based solely on what's good for your career or bank account or what you want or what will advance your agenda, then you don't know what it means to follow Jesus. Is that clear? The way of Jesus is the way of self-denial. Well, after we deny ourselves, Jesus says, you must take up your cross and follow him. 
Okay? And what this tells us is that we don't deny ourselves just for the sake of denying ourselves. There's not anything that is virtuous about suffering in and of itself. Okay? Jesus carried his cross. When he did that, he didn't do it just because suffering in itself is good. Now, it might have some benefit in, in like self-discipline or something like that. Okay? But when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross, he did it for the sake of others. And so to carry our cross means that we are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others, to carry other people's burdens, even when it's hard. So we talk about Jesus dying uh, for our sins and for the sins of the world. This is what we call the atonement, and this is core to our faith. Okay? This, is, this is one of those non-negotiables. Okay? We are forgiven, we are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? But here, Jesus also says that when he went to the cross, it wasn't just for atonement, it was actually a model for how we ought to live as well. Now, someone might say, well, what about things like, you know, caring for your physical and emotional and, and spiritual health? Okay, what about, what about things like that? And I would answer by saying, I'm in favor of all of those. I think we should. In fact, I think they're very important. In fact, Jesus did this regularly when he would go away on a mountainside to connect with his father to pray. He had to, had to stay connected. But the guiding principle there is not that if you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. Actually, the, I think the, the principle is stated uh, in, in um, uh, the, I think the way the principle is stated here is, is one that I like. Okay? Um, it's this that we do self-care for the sake of others. Okay? Why is it important to take care of yourself? Why is it important not to be lazy? Why is it important to work with your hands? So that you might have something to share with those who are in need. Okay? On a plane, why do you put your own oxygen mask on before your child's? Is it because you're more important than your child? No. It's because you're not any good to your child if you're passed out. Right? You can't help heal other people if you're dying. You can't care for people in need if you're in over your head in debt. You can't carry other people's burdens if you're so weak that you can barely carry your own. Okay? You don't do those things just so you can be your best self, although that's a fine thing. But whether it's physically or financially or emotionally, we need to build strength and virtue and courage and resiliency and could add a hundred different words there. But we do that for the sake of others. Okay? One more quick note before we get on to the last thing, okay? What Jesus meant by carrying our cross, I think is a direct challenge to the posture that many of us have in our society today that we as Christians are in a war against the world, okay? See, too often, we as Christians have the General Patton approach where he said, no one ever won a war by dying for his country. He won by making the enemy die for his country, and maybe this is true in the military, but this is not true when it comes to the cause of Christ. Jesus didn't win by killing his enemies. He won by dying for them. You know, one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture is John 3.16. It says this, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he goes on with this. He says, God did not send his son into, condemn the in, into the world to condemn the world. That, was, that wasn't his purpose, right? But that the world might be saved through him. Now, it's true. The Apostle Paul does say in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are in a war, 
but it is a war against the principalities and powers, the forces of evil in this dark world. And so we should put on the full armor of God. But we should not have a mindset that we are trying to defeat our enemies who are people. Okay? That should not be our motivation. That wasn't Jesus' motivation. His motivation was love for the world, okay? not love for the things of the world, okay? but love for the people of the world. And so as believers, we have to be certain of our identity in Christ. We have to have that as our foundation. We have to know who we are in Christ, and we have to know that we were called out for the sake of the world. Here's the final piece, verse 24. Wow, this is heavy, isn't it? All right. Verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, what's interesting about this statement is that it seems that Jesus is implying that it's possible to deny yourself and take up your cross and still not follow Jesus. Right? Because there are a lot of people who make incredible sacrifices in life, but they do it to impress other people or they do it because they lack a sense of self worth and, and they do it because this is how they earn other people's love. There are other people who live for the sake of others for the same reasons. Now, there are other people you know, who do it in all sincerity. They do it out of care and love and concern for uh, other people, and I think that's great. I think it's commendable. Even, even non-believers do this. Okay? But oftentimes, they do it because they believe that this world is all that we have. But when we follow Christ, that we realize that when we deny ourselves and we put others first, that we are not only giving something up, we're actually making a trade. We're trading one thing for another. In fact, there's no way that we can avoid this trade. Okay? Jesus talks about the trade starting in verse 25. He says this, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Well, from here until Easter, we're talking about the way of resurrection. And we get excited about the resurrection, don't we? we get, in fact, you know, we had uh, Dick Walquist's funeral this week. And uh, it's one of the amazing things about being a believer is that we do not grieve as those who have no hope, right? Because we know that it's not the end, that his suffering is over, that, that he's now, you know, where he wants to be, um, which is, it's a pretty amazing thing. All of that sounds good, and it's very real, okay? But there is no resurrection without the cross. There is no life in Christ without dying to ourselves, okay? But what Jesus says is that the life God will give us when we die to ourselves will be way better than the one that we are so desperate to hold on to. Now, chances are, this is not an all or nothing thing for you or maybe for any of us. Chances are, there are some areas of your life that you have already surrendered. Some areas of your life in which you are carrying your cross, you've died to yourself, but there are some areas that you're still holding on to. Clinging to life as you want it to be rather than as God is calling us to be, whether it's financially or family or work or thought life or attitudes or unforgiveness or anger or doubt, what we oftentimes don't realize is that when we hold on to these things, is that they don't bring life, they actually prevent it. 
And so the question that we have to answer when we think about denying ourselves and carrying our cross is what will it take for us to let go? Because the truth of the matter is, is Jesus made this trade for us. He traded his life for ours. The amazing thing is that we all get to benefit from it. So what does it look like in your life to deny yourself, carry your cross, and follow him? Lord, we want to give you thanks today that you are a God who saw that trade as worthwhile. And we don't understand it. We don't get it. We don't know why you would do something like that. Um, And yet, God, we trust that you did. And, And I pray that today, that anything that I said would not come from an attitude of guilt. Conviction, yes. But even more so, God, out of gratitude and appreciation that you made that trade for us. And so, God, may we then see resurrection on the horizon and that we would have so much faith that that's what our future is, that we can give up anything here. There's nothing here that really matters that much, that we can't give it up for the sake of life with you. And so, God, throughout this week, as each one of us considers what this means for us, God, I pray that that you would guide our thoughts, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and that you would affirm the things in our lives that, that we're already doing, that you would say, yeah, you're getting it. And God, that, that you would give us the strength, you would give us the faith and the courage to take up our cross to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.